Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Uh, but we are, we are continuing today our, our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And so this is a series where we explore some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And, and we call it The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus because we recognize that the Bible serves this one singular purpose. It serves one singular purpose, and that purpose is to point us to Jesus and to the work and the redemption that happens on the cross. And we call it the unexpected narrative of Jesus because this is how we discover God's love that is written through every page and every story in texts that span, or that span hundreds of years and stories that take place over thousands of years. And it's unexpected because through these stories, sometimes seemingly unconnected, we discover how radical the love of God truly is. And so um, one thing before we, before we keep going in our, in our sermon, I want to remind you uh, that we want to be praying for you as well. We believe uh, not only is God a, a God that can come through our finances, but God is a God who can come through in absolutely anything and everything. And so we want to be praying for you uh, in, in your moments of, of need and your moments of thanksgiving as well. So um, if... I think, yeah, there we go. We have the prayer request. So if you want to text in your prayer requests, uh, you can do that by texting Full Soul 358 to the number 37607. Uh, once you text it Full Soul 358 to that number, you'll be joined into the, the little chat there. And then you can text in your prayer requests or your praises. Don't worry, it's completely anonymous. We don't see who texts in. Uh, and only our team, is, is, uh, only our team sees those requests and, and is praying for those uh, throughout the week. So that's open throughout the whole week. That's kind of what it looks like when you text it. You'll be, you'll be responded with an automated message that says you have joined the session, and then you can text in your prayer requests or your praises. I want to be praying for you throughout the week as well. So you can text them in during the service, and we'll be praying at the end of the service, and as well throughout the week uh, if you want to text those in as well. Um, if you're watching online, you can also type in your prayer request through the YouTube chat if you'd like to uh, pray uh, or ask for prayers that way. Uh, but recently, we've been going through the, the writings of the prophet of Isaiah. And so we've been going through the book of Isaiah. And, and Isaiah is this prophet who ministered to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, sometime in the, in the 700s BCE, before Christ, before Common Era. And, and he warned the people of Judah of this destruction that was coming at the hands of the nation of Babylon, all the while the Assyrians were conquering some of, uh, of the Judean countryside. And so he called the people to repentance. He called them to change their ways. He called them to put their hope in the coming of a Messiah that would deliver them, that would set all things right. And so today we are going to be looking at the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah, starting in verse 5. So Isaiah chapter 41, verse 5, should be available on the screen for you if you want to follow along with us. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Uh, so verse 5 says this, the islands have seen it in fear, the ends of the earth tremble. They approach and they come forward. They help each other and they say to their companions, be strong. Verse 7, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths it with a hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, 
You descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, have not rejected you. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So at the beginning, the book of Isaiah is painting this, this imagery that we see in verses five to seven. And, and Isaiah is painting this image of these islands and these, the whole earth is trembling at the work and the majesty of God. And the islands begin to comfort each other. He's, he's kind of personifying these islands and, and they begin to comfort each other because of how awesome the works of God are. And it says they, they kind of fear and they tremble. That's what the verse says. Uh, and, and this fear and trembling that the earth experiences isn't the kind of fear that we imagine comes with being scared. No, it's, or, or the fear that comes with threats or with something evil or menacing. That's not the fear that Isaiah is talking about, but rather the fear and trembling is kind of this awe-inspiring. When you see something so majestic, you get goosebumps and shivers all over your body. That's the kind of fear that Isaiah is talking about. And so this is happening because this God, this God of Israel is doing something that no one else can do. He's doing something amazing, something powerful over the earth, over earth's history. And he's foretelling of things that are far off into the future. And so God is telling the Israelites, do not worry about being in Babylonian captivity because I am sending someone to rescue you. I am sending Cyrus. I'm sending the Persian army to punish Babylon for their sins and to deliver you and to allow you to return back into your land. And, and he's, he's foretelling these things of the future. And he's also promising this redemption. God is promising this redemption that none of the other fake and false gods can offer. And as you read through the verses, you can almost hear the urgency that is in God's voice as he speaks to the people, because he desperately wants them to know that it is he who rescued them. He wants them to know that it was he who chose them. It wasn't any of the other gods. It wasn't anything else they were putting their trust in. It wasn't the nations of the time that had chosen Israel. God is saying, I am the one who has chosen you. It wasn't the false gods of Egypt or Moab or Assyria or Babylon. It was the God of Israel. It was Yahweh himself who had declared this people, his people. And he's saying it would be he who protects them and strengthens them and redeems them. Not the other gods, not the other idols. He alone would do it. And so here's our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is tied to last week's lesson. Our first lesson is this. There's no hope in idols. There's no hope in idols. You see, last week we explored kind of a similar idea that we can't build our lives, our hopes, our ambitions on weak foundations. We said that we cannot build on empty promises. And Isaiah really wants us to understand this because he's repeating it again and again and again throughout the book. He wants us to know how futile it is, how useless it is for us to put our hope in the idols and the things of the world. And this is what Isaiah says in verse 7. If you can put up verse 7 back on the screen for us there. Uh, verse 7 says this. The metal worker, says, encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths it with a hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. And the other nails down the idol so it will not topple. So Isaiah is saying that the metal worker, the one who forms the idol, is encouraging and kind of promoting the one who overlays it with gold. 
And the one who does the finishing details on the idol encourages furthermore the metal worker who's building the idol itself. It's this cycle of encouragement where one is encouraging the other, who's encouraging the other, who's encouraging again the one in the beginning. And so Isaiah really wants us to see it's not God who's asking you to build these idols. It's not God who's, who's in these idols, but rather it is, it is people themselves. In fact, it's not even the gods. Those other false gods that you think exist, that you think have power, it's not even them who are encouraging you to build these idols. It is the people themselves. The people themselves are encouraging each other to build idols. And he, and, and he further highlights how useless these false gods and idols are. And he says this at the very end of, of the verse. He says, the other one nails down the idol so it will not topple. And so these verses seem kind of random, but they're really profound. It's a profound statement that Isaiah is making to the people of the time. Because the people believed that the gods ruled over territories. They believed that the gods ruled over temples and, and ruled over idols. They believed that the gods were jealous and prone to bursts of rage and destruction, especially on those who desecrated the temples and the idols. So if you read the stories of Greek mythology, that's just some examples of how the people believed, they believed that they had gods for different things. Zeus was the god of the heavens, the god of the gods. Poseidon was the god of the sea. Hades was the god of the underworld. And so they believed that the gods were kind of compartmentalized. And anyone who desecrated a temple or an idol kind of risked the fury of that god. So if you've read the books of, of Homer, uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad, you'll know that Odysseus, after fighting in the Trojan War, sacks the temple of Athena, he sacks and, and disrespects Poseidon himself. And so as, as Odysseus is returning home, a journey that should have only taken weeks ends up taking years. Because Poseidon is so angry that Odysseus had not offered these sacrifices to him to ensure a safe journey that he twists the entire earths and seas, swifts and currents so that Odysseus would not return home. He tries again and again to kill Odysseus. And that's the whole book is about these adventures that Odysseus has. And so these people believe that if you offended the gods, if you, if you sacked the temple, if you destroyed it, if you desecrated the idols, that you were incurring the wrath of that very god. And so when countries, when they conquered each other, one of the things they would often do was to conquer and desecrate that nation's temples. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple of Jerusalem, what did he do? He destroyed the temple and he took all the articles, all the gold, all the bronze, everything that was of value, he took it and he brought it to his temple. Because their idea was that if they were conquering a nation, their God had defeated this other God. That's the way that the people believed the world worked. So the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, believed they conquered Israel, which means that their god Marduk had somehow defeated Israel's god Yahweh. That's what they believed. They also believed that if an idol or a statue was knocked down, that the glory of that god was threatened and it was made less holy. And we see an example of that in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 5. There's a story where the Philistines, they defeat Israel they capture the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and then what do they do? They take this sacred item of the Israelites and they bring it to the temple of Dagon. And in the story, we find out that the Philistines wake up in the morning and they see the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon and the idols of Dagon have top toppled over. And so they're worried, like, what kind of omen is this? And so they set up the idols once more. And they wake up the next morning, and this time the idol is toppled over, the head is broken off, the arms and the legs are shattered into pieces, and they worry, and they say, wow, this God of Israel must be powerful because he's toppled our God. 
If the idols are knocked over, if Dagon could not even defend his statue, then that must mean that Yahweh is a more powerful God. Long story short, the Philistines are terrified of what happens, what it means. They send the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites. See, idols that fell disgraced the God because it meant the God had no power. If the God could not even hold up a statue, how could he protect his people? If a God could not hold up his image, how could he serve and respond to his people? That was the mindset of the ancient people of the time. And so Isaiah says this, the one who crafts the idol nails it down so it will not topple. Then you understand the gravity of what really Isaiah is saying. He's making a commentary on how useless worshiping these idols are because he poses a question without even asking a question. He says, basically, how can a hammered God, a God that is made out of a rock or a stone or metal that has to be nailed down to be held in place, how can that God have any power? That's what he's asking. How can you put your trust in a God that cannot even hold his own statue up? A God that has to be nailed down in order to prevent it from toppling. How can a hunk of wobbly metal provide any hope? That's what Isaiah is asking. And there's something important that you need to know about the time period of chapter 41. It takes place long after the Babylonian conquest. So there are, the people of Israel are already in, in, in exile. This isn't before Babylon has conquered them. This is after Babylon has conquered them. The temple in Jerusalem is already destroyed. And so these people are now in exile. They have been defeated. They have been conquered. They have been dispossessed. And so the people are in a foreign land. Their temple is destroyed. And it seems to Israel as if Yahweh had abandoned them. Remember their mindset. If the nation conquers the nation, the God has conquered the God. They've just been conquered by the Babylonians. So they assume, man, our God Yahweh has been defeated or something. We don't really know. We don't know what to do. And so they begin searching for hope. And they begin turning. Israel, unfortunately, turns to the gods of the Babylonians. They begin reasoning, well, if Babylon has strong gods, perhaps their gods can defend us. Perhaps their gods can answer our prayer requests. But the question Isaiah asks is this, how can these idols that need to be nailed down have any power? You're asking to pray and you're sacrificing to all these idols. You're sacrificing to the gods of the Babylonians. You're asking for hope and redemption and healing. He's like, but they're nailing down their idols. How can they have any power. See, we live in this kind of culture that places such a high value on material possessions, on wealth, on hard work, on titles, on positions of authority. And we begin to turn those things into idols. And it's not that possessions or wealth or, or hard work is evil by itself. No, that's not it. But they become harmful when we begin sacrificing everything in order to gain it. When we sacrifice our families, our well-being, our physical and mental health, our relationship with God, when we sacrifice to gain those things, they become idols. We begin sacrificing at the altar of all these things we pursue, hoping that those things will finally provide the meaning and the happiness and the fulfillment or the hope or the security that we long for, right? We put our trust in these idols. And when we do finally gain them, we begin continually sacrificing in order to keep them. We continue working hard. We continue sacrificing everything in order to have those things. And we sacrifice everything to prop these idols up. We sacrifice everything to nail down these idols to ensure that they won't fail us. But if our idols don't have the power to stand on their own, Isaiah asks, how can these idols serve us 
in, dire, in, in times of dire need and distress? How can a powerless idol provide any hope? What has failed us won't start suddenly coming through for us. See, the ironic part is that Israel was in this situation because they put their trust in other idols, because they put their trust in other gods, because they stopped trusting Yahweh and they put their things, all their eggs in one basket and it failed them. And they said, well, it's failed us once. Well, I don't know. Let's go back. Let's try it one more time. What has failed us before will not start suddenly coming through. You see, the source of our pain will not be and cannot be the source of our deliverance. Did you hear that? The source of our pain cannot be the source of our deliverance. Anything that these idols could offer is only fleeting. It's only temporary. It's only unfulfilling. But what God offers is eternal. It is everlasting. It is perfectly fulfilling. See, there is no hope in idols. And so Isaiah 41 in verse 8, we continue reading, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who, will be, who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, Israel is looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a redeemer. And Isaiah tells them, you won't find that in these idols. You won't find that in these other gods. You won't find that anywhere else. And after Isaiah warns them, God begins to speak through Isaiah to his people. And the message is that God is the one who's chosen them. The message is that he would be their strength. He would be the one to help them. He would be the one to uphold them. The problems that they faced would soon go away. They would search for their enemies, but their enemies would be nowhere to be found. And then God says, even though Jacob is a helpless little worm, even though Israel is a small, tiny remnant, they would have nothing to fear because God was on their side. He himself promised to help them because he is their God. Because he is the Holy One of Israel, he says, because he is their Redeemer. That's the title that God claims at the end of verse 14. I'll read it again. He says, Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you. Declares, and he signs his name, the Lord, Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This is our second lesson for today. Our second lesson is only God can redeem. Only God can redeem. You see, God has just challenged the gods of the Babylonians, and he says, do something. He says, he says and, and they've been worshiping these other gods. And so he, in the chapter, he challenges these gods. He says, do anything. But they do not respond. They do not prophesy. They do not rescue because they can't. He says, these powerless gods that have to be propped up, they don't do anything. They're powerless. They're useless. They're less than nothing. They don't exist. But God doesn't dash Israel's hopes without giving them hope. He doesn't say, oh, you can't trust in those idols and then leaves them there. He redirects their hope to someone who can actually provide hope. 
to the only one who actually does have the power to tell the future, to save Israel, to redeem Jacob. And that's exactly what God promises. He promises to answer those needs, to fulfill those hope. And when God finishes uttering these promises, he signs his letter, like I said, and he calls himself the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. It's this title that God takes on. And the title that God uses, the word God uses for Redeemer, is the same word that we find in the story of the book of Ruth. It is a story where this man named Boaz accurately reflects the loving character of God by redeeming this Moabitess, this foreign woman named Ruth. You see, in ancient Israel, they were, they were part of this larger patriarchal culture and structure. And so a woman was protected underneath her family. She was protected by her parents until she was married. Then she was protected under her husband. And so oftentimes, if a woman's husband died, she was left without means of protection. She had already left her family and, and, and left under the care of her husband. And if her husband died, she was left without protection. Women didn't often own land. They didn't often work in more profitable areas. And so women in those times relied heavily on the male heads of their households, whether it was the father when they were younger or the husband when they were married. And so in order to protect these widows from being forgotten and cast off, God gave his people this law. He gave them this law in Leviticus that said, if the, if the woman's husband dies, the closest relative to that widow's husband is responsible legally to redeem that widow and the family's estate. That's the whole purpose of the story of Ruth. And you see, God cared about his people so much, he cared about their lineage so much, that he wanted to make sure that both the widowed woman was taken care of and that the family's name and history would be carried on. And so this law we find in the book of Le in Leviticus is called leveret marriage. So the next of kin, the next, the closest person or relative had the responsibility of redeeming marrying the widow, producing an offspring with that widow so that that offspring could be considered the deceased person's offspring, carry on the lineage, carry on the, 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 the property and care for that family. That was the whole purpose. The redeemer then would take in the widow, care for her, protect her underneath his own household. So the redeemer provides some crucial things. These are things, four things the Redeemer provides. One, he protects the family of those who he has redeemed, specifically the marginalized. He restores the land to that family. If the family member was murdered or if the surviving family member was harmed in any way, the Redeemer avenged the wrongs done against that family. And finally, the Redeemer would secure the protection and prosperity of that family for the future. So the person wasn't left in need. So when God claims Israel as his own, these are the promises that he is extending. He says, I promise to be your deliverer. I promise to be your kinsman redeemer. I promise to fulfill this law. And if you read the whole book of Isaiah, that's exactly what God promises. To fulfill the requirements of this leveret marriage, to fulfill the requirements of this kinsman redeemer, because he promises to protect Jacob and Israel, who is marginalized in Babylon, and to redeem them. He promises to restore his people back to the land that they were taken from. He promises to avenge with justice the wrongs done against Israel by the conquering nation. And he promises the fourth thing to, to secure the protection and prosperity of Israel for the rest of eternity through the work of the Messiah. God is promising to fulfill all four of the requirements of the kins and redeemer. And when he's saying that I'm the only one who can do this, 
He's saying there are no other gods that can do it. They're not closely related to you. I am the next kinsman. I am the next redeemer. Not only because those gods don't actually have real power, not only because they actually can't redeem or do anything, but because they aren't even close to you. These idols don't have an obligation to you. These gods aren't obliged to Israel. They have no interest in caring for God's people. But he says, but I do. I have an interest in caring for Israel. I have an interest in caring for for Jacob because they are my family. God says, they are my family, and so I will redeem them. Not only is he the only one with actual power who could even redeem Israel, he's the only one with a vested interest. Israel is his family. He has made a covenant with these people. He wants to protect them. He wants to redeem them. He wants to restore Israel because they are his family. And he's not doing it because he's obliged by some law. He's doing it because he loves his family. Only God can redeem. And not only that, but only God will redeem. So Isaiah 41 verse 17 says this, the poor and needy, they search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put the desert, the cedar, and the acacia, uh, the the myrtle and, and the olive, I will put them in the desert. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that my people may see, so that my people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. In verse 21. God says, present your case. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Declare to us the thing to come. Tell us what the future holds, verse 23, so that we may know that you are indeed gods. Do something. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. And then God says, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one has heard any words from you. He's talking to the gods. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are false gods. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind, vapor, useless, nothing, confusion. So God again challenges these other gods. He says, do something, do anything, do something good, do something bad, bless, curse, tell of the future. In fact, if the future is too hard for you to tell, tell us of the past. Tell us of the things that have already come. Do something. And God's like, but they can't. They can't do anything. And God responds to the challenge himself. He says, I will show you that I am God. I will prophesy to you. I will tell you something. There is one who comes from the north, one from the rising sun. And this person would be the same. So remember, these people are in Babylonian captivity at the time. 
And so God is now speaking of something that hasn't yet happened, something that will happen. And so he says, these people, this one coming from the north, the one coming from the rising sun, he will come to deliver Israel. He will come to conquer and punish Babylon. And so God is prophesying of this man named King Cyrus, this man of Persia, this kingdom of the east. It was to the eastern side of Babylon that would come and conquer Israel or conquer Babylon and set Israel free. This was the man that God is talking about, Cyrus, the one from the rising sun. The the sun rises in the east, this eastern kingdom in the direction the sun rises. But Cyrus is also the one from the north. They're the same guy. And it's interesting that God gives very specific details. He says, this one from the rising sun, a kingdom from the east comes, one from the north, right? They're not two different guys because Cyrus, when he conquers Babylon, he doesn't come in from the east. He goes around up and comes down from the north and conquers Babylon that way. And so God is prophesying decades, centuries before this even happens and telling them exactly what is going to happen. He proves his power by giving visions of what is to come. And God also promises redemption and deliverance for Israel. He says, I am the one who makes rivers flow from barren heights. I am the one who causes the desert to gush forth with water. He says, I am the one who sets trees in desert wastelands and causes them to flourish. No other God can do that. Only I can do that. So here's our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. Only God can bring So the Israelites, they were foolish for worshiping these powerless gods, for worshiping these powerless idols. They hoped that these false gods could deliver them. But again, the irony was that the very reason that they were in captivity was because they put put their trust in powerless gods, because they relied on false gods that had no power to deliver them. It led them into captivity in the first place. Before the Babylonian exile, the Israelites often turned to the Canaanite god of storms, the God of agriculture, the God you might know as Baal. They were experiencing droughts and season of dryness. And so they said, well, the Canaanites, they have this God of agriculture. They have this God of rain. They have this God of storms. Let's pray to, pray to him and see if he can answer us. But their, their worship of Baal only resulted, resulted in further droughts and further starvation. The God of storms of the Canaanites, Baal, could not give Israel rain. And so now, the Babylonians, they're, 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 or the Israelites are in Babylon and they've turned to another God. They've turned to Marduk. They've turned to another God of rain and agriculture. But Marduk is also the patron God of Babylon. Marduk is also the God of justice and fairness, regeneration, healing, compassion. So they look to the Babylonian God Marduk and they say, may this God have compassion on us. May he bring healing. May he bring regeneration. May he bring justice and fairness because we have done nothing wrong. And so God promises, he says, I will bring the rains. I will bring the springs. I will heal the desert lands. And when he says that, he's not just saying, oh, only I can do that. He's actually directly challenging the gods the Israelites would have worshiped. He's directly challenging Baal. He's directly challenging Marduk. You see, before captivity, they worshiped Baal, but it didn't work. We see it in the story of 1 Kings with the story of Elijah. Elijah said, you keep worshiping this God, but he can't do anything. And then we have that whole test with the fire coming down and then the cloud comes in and then the rain pours everything once they begin worshiping Yahweh. And so now in captivity, the Israelites are turning to Marduk. They're saying, Marduk, heal our land, have compassion on us, have justice on us, be fair, restore us to Jerusalem. But God says he can't do it either. 
Baal couldn't do it. Marduk can't do it. None of them can do it. If you want justice, if you want restoration, if you want deliverance, come to me, not to those other gods. And so these symbols and these analogies that we see in Isaiah aren't random. They're very specific to address not only the needs of Israel, restoration and healing, but also to contrast and challenge these powerless nature of the gods that the people were turning to. He's not just saying, not only will I heal the land, I will do all the things you expect from these gods because they can't actually do it. God wanted his people to see that restoration and salvation was not in false gods. They couldn't do anything. Only God could bring hope. So I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. You see, the powers, the gods, the idols, the things of the world, they're all powerless. They can't do anything. You see, there's no hope in idols. We can put our trust and our ambitions and our hope in those things, but they aren't real gods. They, they have no power, and anything they could even offer is only temporary. It is unsatisfactory. It is nothing but an illusion. Israel turned to these other gods, and that's why they ended up in exile and captivity in the, in the first place. The source of your pain, where we said that, the source of your pain cannot be the source of your deliverance. The idols that failed them wouldn't suddenly come through for them now. When we put our trust in idols, we forfeit God's blessings and protection. Those idols that we're putting our trust in, they cannot do what God can do. The only one who can bring deliverance is God. Only God can redeem. Not only is God the only deity with any actual power, he is the only God who can actually and will actually redeem. This God, Yahweh, he is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who has a vested interest in us. God fulfills this law of redemption, not out of legal obligation, but out of the love for the ones that he has chosen as his family. You see, we are the widow. We are left without protection or a future, but God redeems us. He restores our honor. He restores us to our inheritance. He dispenses justice against sin on our behalf. He secures our prosperity and our future in the promise of the Messiah and the promise of his kingdom. You see, God is our redeemer. And only God can bring hope. We need to come to realize that all of our gods, all of our idols, all the things of the world that we put our trust in, they have failed us. We are in the mess that we're in often because we keep putting our trust in anything and everything but God. That's why we're in the mess we're in. People looked, the people of Israel, they looked to Baal, they looked to Marduk for prosperity, for protection, for compassion, for healing, but they could not deliver. Baal and Marduk couldn't answer their requests. Only Yahweh could. And when we look to our idols, we look for security and hope and peace of mind and redemption, but these, these things of the world, they can't offer that. They can't actually deliver. Only God can. Only God can take our barren heights and bring forth springs of water. Only God can take our desert wastelands and transform them into vivacious, flourishing gardens. He's the only one who can. And so we can stop putting our trust in all these idols, stop looking to the world to fulfill our needs and our hopes and our ambitions, and we can put our trust in Jesus 
because he is the only one who can give us hope. He's the only one with power. Only he can do what we need him to do. Amen.